Hello. Welcome to the Malibu Music Room. Hey gang, since we're holed up in COVID-19 world, we're unable to bring guests into our studio. So in the interim, I thought you'd enjoy hearing an interview I did last May when my band, The Malibus, was playing at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. We were privileged to have as our drummer for those shows, Bob Hendren. Bob is a true 60s British Invasion icon and a fabulous storyteller. The audio is not quite as good as our usual podcasts, but it was done on the fly on the road. So settle back and listen to The Malibu Music Room. Robert Bob Henrit. Yep, it's me. Yeah. No, uh, founding member of Argent, as well as tw- what twenty plus years with the Kinks. Yeah. Unit four plus well, two. Actually, that's it's not quite twenty. It was uh, thirteen, but you know it's close enough. The Roulettes. Yes, that that was that. It wasn't the first band I was in. I was in a band called Buster Meekle and the Daybreakers, mm. and Buster Meekle decided he he wasn't ready for stardom, so we went for our. Uh, we went for our audition with EMI and we got a contract and he decided he wasn't ready for stardom, so we didn't do it then. Uh, and he then went off and we all became Unit 4 Plus 2. Hmm. So we had a hit record with Concrete and Clay, which was uh, 1964, maybe? Yeah, let's talk for a second about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we can really go into the weeds here very easily with you, but um, <clears throat> but, I th- but, but I think Is that... that good or bad? It's, well, it's good if, you know, I mean, it, it's, it would be good if we had nothing but the, like a two-hour show or a 12-hour <laughs> show to do. Um, but um, it's very interesting because Unit 4 plus 2 was really kind of a folk group. You, yep. And so really your input was very much like my friend Bruce Gary. I feel like he kind of made my Sharona with his drum beat. Tell me about your story, Unit 4 plus 2, and mm-hmm. how that beat came to be. In. Okay, well, the guy who wrote it, who had actually been playing with Adam Faith with us, and had been in a band called The Hunters, an instrumental band, which I was in. Uh, he wrote this song, and he would have preferred it to have been like The Drifters, you to me, uh, right. you know, that sort of thing, right. which would have been about as commercial as, well, it would have just sounded like second-rate Drifters. Right. So we were, they asked us to do the session, this is me and Russ Ballard, we turned up to the session, and that was, this was in the days of, of you didn't, you didn't rehearse it. You went into the studio and you played it, right. you know, and you worked out what you were going to do. So, which was, it's the most wasteful way of doing it, but that's the way records were made for generations. And that's why a lot of, uh, a lot of bands still owe record companies money. Right. Because, because of the amount of money. I mean, certainly with Argent, we would end, oh, we won't go there, but we, you know, we spent lots of money on making records, and, but we weren't even rehearsing in the studio. So anyway, we rehearsed Concrete and Clay in the studio, and I had just discovered in Downbeat magazine, uh, I, I was reading the, the music for a Brazilian bossa nova. Now, I, I, I'd heard it, but I didn't really know how it went, so I worked it out from this, this sheet. Really? Yeah. By, um, rather than hearing it, you worked it out by seeing it written yeah. out. Mm. Hmm. And so, and that became, so uh, Concrete and Clay, or at least the Concrete and the Clay Relief, my, my feet, when it gets to that bit, right. it's a bossa nova. Right. Before that, it's rock and roll. Well, as I said, they weren't, or rather the, the writer wasn't expecting rock and roll. Uh, and we just we just played it. We went for it, and uh, and it was successful. And then uh, 
I have no idea how this happened, that there's a bell on the beginning and a cowbell, dong ding, dong ding. And I had a cowbell with me, we didn't have a little bell. And they had one in the studio, they had one of those little bells that you find uh, on the concierge has, and you, you put your hand on top of it and it goes ding, right. oh, yeah, to yeah, get yeah. to come. Right, right. That, that was, it was precisely one of those. And the intro, I'd counted it one, two, one, two, three, four. So this was the days of three track recording. Right. You didn't have, you know, you, you didn't have the luxury of uh, dropping in or any of that stuff. So somehow they, they managed to edit it over the beginning and, uh, and the rest is history. Oh. And we, if you want the whole story, we got paid five pounds, 15 shillings and sixpence, which is probably, then it, when it was, that would be about, be about $20 then. Right. Now it, it well, right. it doesn't, it's infin, infinitesimal now. So that's what we got paid, and it sold two million. Yeah. Now, did, but after that song, did you feel because the follow-ups didn't really sound like that? Did you feel because it seems like it was a different kind of beat on that song? Yeah. And did you feel at all compelled to continue that kind of beat? Well, it's the musician's curse, you know. Oh no, we want to do something different this yeah, time, yeah. man. We want to show what we can really, really do. Right. So you're, you're sort of right. Um, uh, well, humor me. Well, Tell concrete me. and clay was a <laughs> biome. Bomb, 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 bomb. The next one was a reverse bio, da dom, bomb, da dom, bomb. So it's ostensibly it's the same, but again it's the musician's curse. We wanted to see where we could take this. You know, we were, even then we were trying to push the envelope. Right. And the, I mean, if, if you're interested, that was the first time that I ever panicked in the studio. There was an orchestra somebody decided there'd be an orchestra. So we had a 50-piece orchestra in the studio with us. And I looked at the, they gave me a part, and I looked at it, I thought, I can't read this, this is, and I really panicked, and uh, I thought, they're gonna be sending me home. <laughs> I can't do this. Of course, it was simple, but I was talking myself out of it. And so Unit 4 lasted for several years, and uh, eventually, I, I was without a faith at the time, and eventually, was in France for a year working with a, a chanteur called Richard Anthony, Richard Anthony, and he was a very clever guy. He yeah. would take whatever was number one in America or number one in England, uh, write his own words to it, and so he would therefore get half of the writing royalty. Right. And, and he didn't even do a translation. You know, a translation would have been sure. okay. He actually made up his own words. So we played out of time, you know, the, the yeah, songs. Huh? Right. And which, in my humble opinion, has got really great words. You know, it's, it's a bit surprising, really, yeah, yeah. because it was the Stones at a time when they didn't write songs. And so he wrote the words, which were baby, 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 je pense à toi, which is baby, baby, I think of you, which is not exactly right, right. out of time. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's the exact opposite. Mm. <laughs> so I came back from France in 1966, and we... We, st we, 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 were, we sort of threw our lot, Russell and I, with uh, Unit 4 Plus 2 and did lots of gigs and mm -hmm. had lots of, lot, spent lots of money. Well, I want to get back to that, but since we're talking about people continuing, yes, Michael. Interesting, Michael Steed from The Marmalade. Hey. I've never asked you this, Bob, in all the hours we spent together, but was the band actually Unit 4 and Plus 2 was you that and was Russ? Us, that was we, Connor yeah, and me and Russell, yeah. Yeah, at least I think so. Yes. Well, there were only four of them when we came along. Yeah, so that's I, what I, I think that was it. I always thought 
It was the most ridiculous name. It didn't make any sense to me. It, it, it was, wasn't rock and roll. I mean, the roulettes were hardly rock and roll, but it had a, it had a bit of a ring to it. But you in four plus two. Um, Maybe quickly explain to the audience who Russ Ballard is, in case okay. they're not uh, familiar. You, to do, you, do, you it? do it because it, it's, okay. a, it'll, it's, a, it's a theme that will, let, it will weave itself through this entire yeah. conversation. Well, Russell, he's Russell to me. He's Russ to everybody else. Russell and I were in a band in 19... 50 early, or maybe 55, something like that. And we started playing together, and we more or less have continuously played together since. Although he was in Argent with, with us, so after, after the, the roulettes, which was Adam Faith, we were then in Unit 4 Plus 2, and then uh, we were in Argent. So that, that continued the whole thing. Then halfway through Argent, Russell decided he was having problems and he decided he didn't want to be on the road, he wanted to be with the family. And so we, we got a new guy into, or two new guys into Argent and, and kept going. And then my life began, I began playing with all sorts of people, like Don McLean, Ian Matthews. And, you know, I, I was a gun for hire, really. Right, right. And whether or not it's ever going to get back together again, I don't know. I think not, but uh, who knows. Uh, but before it collapsed, we made an, al an album. And we made it in a different way because I had the most minuscule of drum kits. Uh, Ian Gibbons had one keyboard. Um, Dave had one guitar. Jim, the bass player, had one bass. And Ray had his ovation. That was it. And so we, we put down all these songs from that, from the early days. And we said, well, we didn't, they weren't only, they weren't just those songs, but we put down a lot of songs. And because of the way we'd recorded it, as in not having much gear, we sounded like the early Kinks. And mm. so I suddenly realized that's the way you do it. You know, you actually um, have, I mean, because most people, mm. I mean, I know guys who take 50 snare drums to the studio to make a bloody album, and, and they do. And, uh, and you know who I'm right, talking right. about, Dave. Right. And, <laughs> and he does. And, uh, but, you know, uh, my philosophy on that, I know it's not quite what you're talking about, but my philosophy on that is if you take 50 snare drums into the studio, the producer, if he's worth his salt, wants to hear them all. Right. By the time you, you get to number 49, he can't remember any of them. Yeah. So the trick is to um, take five snare drums. If they say, can you bring lots? You take five snare drums and you bring the fifth snare drum, the one that you want to play, out after all the others. And by then, he's, he's heard everything, and uh, without a doubt, he's going to go for the fifth one. Cause right, right. So you get to use your acrylite that you wanted to use anyway. So that, anyway, so we, 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 the, with the Kinks, we, that was the way of making a record, and it really, really worked. And how I got the gig is I was, I was in a, a rhythm and blues band. Uh, there were 10 of us, so it was a proper rhythm and blues band with horns and everything. Funnily enough, the horns were with the Kinks as well but not at this particular moment. And uh, the thing about being a 10-piece, of course, it guarantees you're not going to make much money. Right. It's really, really easy to work out how much you get in. <laughs> it's a lot simpler. So we, uh, we were playing at a gig very near London, near my part of London anyway, and uh, I looked out and I thought, into the audience, and I thought, it looks like Ray Davies. So I got on with the gig and we, we were doing things that that were really wonderful to play. I mean, we did a, a, ver a version of Purple Haze and the horns played It was just fabulous. It was great to be in it. And I said, anyway, I looked out and so there was lots to play. 
didn't get a chance to look back at Ray while it was all going on. And eventually the, the gig was over and Ray came up and he said, uh, what are you up to now? I said, well, what have you got? Sort of thing, that sort of yeah. nonsense. And he said, well, I'm making an album. Do you want to play on it? I said, and I, my first thing, thoughts were, well, what about Mick? And right. he said, no, Mick's not making this one. So I said, oh, okay. I said, well, of course, yeah. When do you need me? When's it going to start? You know, <clears throat> tell me what's going to happen. So the next thing I knew, I was in the studio. I was making an album. I was learning how the Kinks make albums and the way they made in those days. You know, Ray would change things for every take. And so you'd be scribbling the stuff down and uh, the next time you went through, there'd be another slight change, you know. Right, right. Ray was big on putting in a 5-4 bar if he wanted to get another couple of words in. Right. And, you know, if he wanted to change the sense of something, he put a 5-4 bar in. So you had to be part of that. So it wasn't a drunken man's gig, that was for sure. Right. Anyway, so I made the album. Uh, and somebody offered me some uh, a tour. I haven't. I can't remember who it was, which is it's embarrassing, really. I can't remember who it was. So I phoned Ray. I said, Ray, um, have you finished with me in the studio? And he said, he said, yeah. He said, why? I said, well, because uh, so, somebody's offered me a tour, and I, I'll do it if you don't need me. He said, you can't do another tour. You're in the Kinks. They were they were the exact words. Right. So he said, well, let's go for a beer. So I went. To Conk Studios, which were very close to me, right, right. Uh, uh, in Crouch End, and I, uh, I was in the Kings. And now, within a week, we were doing an American tour. Wow. And I, I wonder how long it was going to take me to tell, take him to tell me, because you know? <laughs> if I hadn't phoned him, right, right. I mean, anyway, so the you just assumed I, you were. Well, the next thing I knew, we, we were uh, rehearsing, and we had two days rehearsal. We were leaving on the third day, so I. Um, I went to the rehearsals and we did a modicum of the songs because the thing about the Kinks is that there's even when in my day there were at least 25 years before that where of songs that you know I was getting on with my life. I mean, every now and again I'd, we'd bump into the Kinks and we'd do a gig uh, with them and that sort of thing. But uh, I didn't didn't have any idea of the canon of, of music that they'd done. So I learned these songs and wrote down the endings and the next day we came back and did it all again with different endings and i said right we didn't have this ending yesterday he said oh we don't always do the same ending so i then realized the penny dropped this was not a drunken person's gig right you know you had to have your wits about it i mean and i say you had to recognize when it when a minor or a seventh was played because that would make you sure that you go and right, right. you didn't expect to be going. Yeah. You know, if you play the seventh, you're like, hang on, what's he playing that for? And uh, that would take you right. into it. And if you wanted to do two middle eights together, he would. Yeah, right. And he even used to write songs on the stage. Now, did you do any recording with the Kinks with Shel Talmy producing? No, um, I very nearly did. It was ever so close. Um, I got a phone call from an American voice. This was 1964. It was an American voice that I didn't recognize. And he said, can you come and do a session on, uh, on, some, on Monday? No, sorry, Friday. I said, yeah. I said, where is it? And he said, IBC, which was opposite the BBC. In, right, right. Isn't that Port, where Port, Glenn Johns was there, yeah, right? Port, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, uh, I said, yeah, no problem. And I actually said, we were, I was with Adam Faith and we were doing a week in Variety at, um, with the Wimbledon Theatre, which was just down the road. Uh, well, sort of. So I said, tell I've got a, Adam Faith was called Tell. So tell I've got a session on Friday. He said, you can't do it. I said, why? 
He said, because uh, you might be late for the, the show. I said, tell the session's at 10.30. I'll be out of there by 1.30, and I, I'll be in Wimbledon even before you. So he said, no, you can't do it. So in the end, I saw the light and, you know, right. and realized that I wasn't going to do this. So I phoned back the American voice, who turned out to be Shel Talmy. So I didn't get to play on You Really Got Me. But was the kink, was Mick already in the band, the kinks, or there was no, was no actual band? Well, it's, it's a difficult question because Mick was being courted by the Rolling Stones. Oh. But the, the, the kinks had more gigs than the Rolling Stones. I don't know how that happened. Right. So Mick threw his lot in with the kinks rather than with the Rolling Stones, which is... <laughs> It's a ridiculous story, but that's well. Why. Probably the Rolling Stones were still in their blues phase, and so for Absolutely, that reason, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, but I mean, I don't think any of us really in those days thought that looked upon them as being a blues band because it, it wasn't. It, it wasn't quite woke up this morning, da da. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think it was. Well, you know that BB King thing. Little Red Rooster, wasn't it? Yeah, Little Red Rooster. Mm. Right, right. Yeah. BB King, those British boys want to play the blues so badly. And they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's absolutely true. And uh, there are some fabulous stories about... Uh, can I give a story? Please do. Okay, well, Wilson Pickett is making an album in Muscle Shoals. And so all of the Muscle Shoals, Shoals guys are there, but Dwayne Ormond's playing guitar. And I, I don't think he was part of it, uh, not in a, any serious right, way. Right. So, he, he, uh, he was noodling around, and this was the days, as we said earlier, where you record, you actually rehearse in the studio. You know, so you wasted all that bloody money, and which is what we all did, and eventually you came out with a, an album. So um, he, he was noodling away, Dwayne, and he was doing um, a, a Beatles song, which was Hey Jude. And, and, and he said to Wilson Pickett, I've got a great version of this, it'd be great for this album. He said, he said I don't want any of that, those British things. He said, they've stolen all my songs and they've had all the money and I haven't. Hmm. And he, of course he was absolutely right. A bit like Chuck Berry, well, sort of. Right. And so he, they did the album and they got to the end and as luck would have it, the la they needed another track. So uh, Wilson said, okay, let's hear that Beatles song. And he did Hey Jude. And it came out, and it was number one. Yeah. It was number one in England, number one everywhere. And one day, Dwayne Orman uh, and, uh, and Wilson Pickett were sitting together, and the record was playing. And uh, Dwayne said, so what are you singing there, Wilson? He said, what do you mean? Said, what words are you singing? He said, I'm singing the Beatles' words. And he said, what are the Beatles' words? And he said, hey, Jew. <laughs> And it's on the record. You listen to the record, you say, hey, Jew. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. Uh, and, uh, but, I mean, it, the, those blues players were very much against us lot stealing their, right, right, right. their Well, stuff, why you know, not? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Which, of course, is the British invasion, which is uh, right, right. where we, we nearly began. Let me ask you this. You mentioned about going into the studio and wasting time. Mm. My understanding was initially it was the exact opposite, where you, were, you, you had a session... You get into this in your book, which is inter interesting. Bob, incidentally, has a book called Banging On, which is a fantastic book, and he's writing a new one now. Mm -hmm. But in the book, you get into a story where uh, my recollection was the sessions were from 9 a.m. till oh, yeah. till noon, yeah. and it included a tea break, yeah. and I, you were expected to do at least one, maybe two 
tracks. Uh, oh yeah, you had to do the B side. Right be the before noon, but then you guys were getting in there at nine thirty because yeah. that's when you thought. So tell we that. Us, that we, tell we, we thought that that session started at nine thirty. Right. We started at nine. We were always in EMI. Right, right. So this was maybe two, three years before the Stone. Uh, sorry, before. Right. Certainly before the Beatles got there. Right. So for the audience, EMI is now what you think of as Abbey Road, but Abbey really Road it was studio, called EMI, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we would get there to start at nine thirty. So every hour, everything we were ever recording, we, we were cutting our time down. But that was the way we did it. And uh, you had to have a tea break halfway through. And this was a time, and then you had to finish at 12.30. So the, the engineer could go off to lunch. Right. They, had a special, they had lunch, and they had a lunch hour, and that's what they did. It was, it was like a union that made them do it. And there was a pecking order with what they wore. So um, George Martin would wear, for example, a white uh, lab coat. Do they know what lab coats are? Yes. Yeah. Whereas Jeff Emmerich would wear a brown lab right, coat. Right, right, right. Because he wasn't in charge. He was just the, he was pressing right, right. the buttons. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And the BBC was like that. And, and mean, the tea lady had a blue coat, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, there was a tea lady. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I recorded there. And, right. there and, and the tea lady came around the trolley. We were like, what? This is amazing. It, I was in studio, too. It ain't rock and roll, but it is rock and roll. No, it is. We, we, we yeah. didn't know any better anyway. But um, it's British Invasion. It's, it's really, you know, essentially British Invasion rock and roll. Mm. That whole, because that, none of that existed. I mean, people in at EMI Studios were actual engineers. Mm. I mean, they actually studied how to do it. In yeah. the United States, it was people just called themselves engineers. Yeah, well, a lot, yeah. A few, a few English guys went across to New York right. and, and lived there and made records there. Bell Records had English guys at it, you know, were doing, right. pressing the buttons. Really. Right, right. I mean, this, we used to call it the Lancaster Bomber. Because you know it was all grey metal, right, right. You know, so the desk was grey metal. Yeah, and yeah. It had a few faders, few, you know, right. like, like things like you, you got on a. On yeah, it looked like the dashboard of a yeah, plane. Yeah. But let me ask you a couple of questions here. One, and I want to get into how you got into Arjun. But I wanted to ask you, Shell Talmy is noted for his mic placement on drums, mm. using multiple mics. So I guess Glenn Johns it's used three drum. mics. And, but I might One stand, down behind. Right, right. So can you explain a little bit for the audience, yeah. Glenn Johns versus Shall Tell Me in terms of mic placement for drum recording? Okay. If you were in an EMI records for, uh, recording prior to the Beatles, believe it or not, you would have a mic on the bass drum and another microphone. That would be it. The days of, I mean, even last night. But it we, wasn't like an ambient mic at the other end of the no, hall. No. It was, yeah, yeah, it was everything that, close. In, yeah. The reason it wasn't an ambient mic is because that made a sound that, that wasn't polite. Right, you know, right. It was everything you wanted eventually, an explosive sound from, we used to call it the ambulance mic, and it would be up in the corner, right. and it would pick up the after sound, right. which when it was added to, the, to the, the main sound of it, made it sound larger than life, and, uh, and that's what we wanted. So Glenn Johns, well, so in the early days, there'd be one microphone above everything, which would pick up the cymbals, the hi-hat, the bass drum, or not the bass drum, the snare drum, the toms, and there'd be a mic on the, on the toms, on the bass drum as well. So that was how it was done. And then Glenn Johns came along quite some time later, and we, we started having more than one overhead microphone, and, uh, and we had started having stereo. And within, well, as you know, a lot of records, well, all records were made in mono. Sure. Uh, I think the way God intended. Yeah. 
God and Phil Spector. Yeah. <laughs> Poor old Phil. Oh, yeah. But um, so he somehow decided if you put a microphone low down behind the floor, Tom, it would give some more space to he it. He being... Say again? Which he, no. He being Shell or Glenn? Oh, no, this is Glenn. Okay. Yeah, no, Shell, Tommy didn't... I mean, the, no producer had the uh, the option, really. But, uh, but this was in the... When Shell was around, it, there were, we had A&R men. George Martin was an A&R man. He was on salary. Yeah. He wasn't getting a piece of the action, right. at least not then. Right. Uh, and, and so there wasn't the leeway for them to experiment. They, you know, they just did what they were supposed to do. Right. Uh, and, and George Martin was famous for doing comedy records before the Beatles came along. And it's almost as if the Beatles were his penance, you know. Right, right. You know. Yeah, they were. Yeah, he, you're going to take you're going to take the Beatles, man. Well, he was having an affair with, with these naughty boys now. Yeah, yeah. right, right. He had been was having an affair with his secretary, and it was looked down on by. I he's a good Catholic boy. Well, as are <laughs> we, but that, that, that didn't stop us. But anyway, um, yeah. Well, anyway, go on with it. I don't want to okay, digress so, to it. If, so, the microphone that this was a revelation and then to, because it gave space to the, the drum sound all yeah. of a sudden the drum sounded like we wanted them to sound because I mean this was the days of tea towels on the snare drum and, right, right. and the toms I mean the, I haven't seen any pictures of Ringo playing on top of a, with a tea towel on the snare drum right. but I know he did yeah. because we all did you know and uh, because the, the the recording equipment couldn't handle right. the explosions right. you know, if you put a a microphone really need. There really weren't limiters at that in those days enough that they could handle the variation in well, sound. The pi limiter was there, right? And because it's very interesting, people say, "I've got a lovely drum kit, but you know what? I just don't sound like uh, Ringo." Right. And, and I mean, it's just ridiculous to think somebody would say that, but they do say that. They think if they get the same uh, drum kit as Ringo, they're right. going to sound like right. it. Right. Well, you have to have a, a different. Uh, there's so much in the hands. I mean, that, yeah, you know. but also you need pie limiters. Well, nobody's right. got pie limiters. Right. I'm sure there is an ad that's a, a pie limiter. Right, right. But that, that did all the sucking and blowing, and it right. made the noise. So that's what we, we did, and uh, we didn't know any better anyway. You know, nobody was coming in and saying, do you know what, if you could do this and do that, you get a better sound, yeah. or you get a different sound. Yeah. So certainly, the once we had an ambient mic, that made the difference. Well, let me mention to the audience that uh, Keith Moon has said you're his favorite drummer mm. and, um, and my understanding correct me please is that Shell Talmy when he when he recorded Keith Moon mm. he used multiple mics and that was like a new type of record, way of recording drums well you know two mics would have been multiple from what had been before right right you know, so I mean it, the day it, it was years before we, we had a mic on every drum. It yeah. really was. And, it, and equally, you, you probably wouldn't know this, it wasn't until Yes bought, bought Iron Butterflies PA and shipped it back to England. And it was old when they bought it, but it was big and it was Voice of the Theatre. It was all that. Sure. And they shipped it back to England. And all of a sudden, this was the, the industry standard. And, and it sounded fantastic. Mm -hmm. it, funnily enough, we played at the boxing ring here in Liverpool. And it was the first time I saw that PA, and because we were we were on with Yes, wow. and but they had bought Iron Butterflies PA, and that was the first, I mean the first use of that right. I'd ever seen. And when we our first tour in 1970 with Arjun, um, we were seeing 
Wem Collins, if that means anything. It does, Column yeah. Column speakers. Because Wem uh, was the first, as a musician, that was the first big PA system I ever saw. Yeah. I mean, you saw Voice of the Theater, yeah. but that was kind of a layover from the theater, from, yeah, yeah. from movie I'll theaters. Movies, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Wem was the first one I ever saw that was actually a purpose-built rock and roll thing for us to use. Well, to take that to its conclusion, we, the first tour we were looking at big PAs and we were looking at adaptions of big PAs. And the way we, 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 did, we toured with a, a PA that was called Cohen, which was K-O-E-N, believe it or not. Oh. And this guy had taken Wem columns and bolted them together. Oh. And it made a solid structure, but it also made a solid sound. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that would make any right, difference, right, right, but right. it did. Yeah, sure. So there well, it's like a piano. I mean, the, what makes the piano is the resonance of the board. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's the yeah. same thing. You're using that resonance. Interesting. I want to get into a little bit quickly here um, how you got into Argent. Okay. I was in Unit 4 Plus 2. We were playing in Basildon, Basildon <laughs> which is in Essex. It's uh, sort of near where Steedy comes from. Yeah. And, we were and please feel free to chime in here. I want to do separately, but you're... Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, and so we, we, uh, we were playing in a dance hall, and just like the time I looked out and there was Ray, although this was before that, uh, I, I looked out and there was Rod Argent with Chris White. And I thought, what's Rod Argent doing in the audience? So now, was, had the zombies folded by this not time? Not quite. Okay. No, the... As it happens, Odyssey and Oracle was about to come out. Oh. Since 1968, Bob? Yeah, it would be, yeah. So I look out, and there's Ron, and then after the show, we, we, uh, we get together, and I think one of us, me and Russell were together then, said, I suppose, um, what are you guys up to? He said, well, we're, we're thinking of doing something new. I said, what is that? He said, we want a new band. I said, no more zombies? He said, well, no. And this was before... Um, Odyssey and Oracle had exploded on onto the world, you know, because it really was a big thing, even though it was spelt wrong. Did you know Odyssey? Yeah, wrong? and and I and I thought it it wasn't their fault. It was the no, no, it was it was, the, it was a record company, whoever their designer no, wait, wait, was. No, they uh, They had a friend called Blimey, I can't remember his name. They had a friend who was a, a an art teacher, and he had done the the artwork for the album. Oh gosh, I almost said his name, and he had. Uh, had done the artwork and spelt Odyssey wrong. I think there was a, 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 a massive worldwide misconception that it was probably an ancient spelling of the word Odyssey. They're trying to dig themselves out yeah, of the hole. You know, but right, they said right, it was right. the world's most famous, or the music world's most famous spelling Time mistake. Yeah, yeah. Right. So um, his name will appear eventually. Uh, so. Uh, he probably doesn't want to be mentioned anyway. Oh, he so. does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got T-shirts with it on. Oh, really? <laughs> so how did you end up so continuing? Right, so I so down Rod and, and, and Chris. They said, we're going to do a new, something new. Would you like to be in it? So they said, come and listen to the tracks. So a couple of days later, we drove over to where, where Chris White lived and listened to the tracks, and they were absolutely fabulous. Uh, really, really... I mean, they were what was happening... And Rod, at this time, wanted to push the envelope, you know, as far as music was concerned. And, and I mean, he'd already, of course, he'd written She's Not There and he'd written some very good songs. Well, at that time, Time of the Season mm-hmm. was the one that was making the hit off. Of, and, and my understanding was the zombies had given up the ghost and then suddenly Time of the Season became a hit and they had to kind of reform. Not quite. Yeah, it, yeah. It's very close, but 
they decided that even though it was doing really well, they they made their decision and they weren't going to do it. They were not going to be the zombies anymore. They were going to be, and Argent came out of it. And, and be, I'm just wondering, do you have any insights to why that was? It was because it seems like Colin and Rod seem to have maintained their. Their well, there was, a, there, was, there was a period when they weren't together. Of course they well, weren't together. But, right. uh, Colin was doing what he was doing. I mean, we were playing on his records, but right, right. but um, he was doing his own thing. Yeah. And Rod didn't want... I mean, it's very interesting because Colin's voice has been misused over the years. He's got a fabulous voice, but he's not a rocker. Right, right. And, and of course... Uh, he, he's, he's like being, a jazz guy, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, or, or a soul singer. Yeah, not, right, maybe yeah. not a soul singer, but a soft soul, yeah. you know. And uh, crooner so, almost, yeah. I mean, and, and he was in some situations, uh, I can't remember the names of the bands, but he was in some situations where he was actually singing in without having to strain, yeah. And I mean, he so uh, Rod didn't want to do that anymore. And I have no idea. Well, they're still t- together, so they obviously like one another. And we were having heard the, the tracks, liked it. The next thing we knew. We were in Germany, playing in a club in Ham, uh, not in Hamburg, in, in uh, Munich, doing nine forty-five minute spots a night. Hmm. Now that is like working down the coal mines, only worse, much right. worse. And but we loved it. Now you, the thing about that is, if if you don't like it, you shouldn't be doing it because it's going to sure. kill you. Right. If you do like it, you yeah, then, then you, you use it as a learning tool, yeah. which we did. And uh, we so we didn't know about. We, we assumed people were coming to these gigs to, to see the band, but they weren't. And uh, we, the, the penny finally dropped and we saw all these women, <laughs> you know, women of negotiable, negotiable affection, as you guys say, right. along the bar. And we realized, so we thought we can do what we like. You know, nobody's going to care because nobody's listening. So this is our rehearsal time. Uh, so we would start the, the first 45 minute spot with dimbles. Da, 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 da. And eventually, we we sounds talk, like uh, sounds we, like green onions. Get, <laughs> yeah. So eventually, we think, oh, hang on, we've done that. So I would go and, and through while while they did, we turn it into another another oh. feel which was related to that feel. And if we wanted to, we go into six eight, or we go into five four, or we'll go into whatever. And forty five minutes later, we'd go back to da 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 da, da and we would stop. But within that uh, six eight five eight, all of that stuff. Came from and and that's where that came from. Just messing around, really, yeah, uh, and getting paid for it. I was wondering where that beat came from because it, it's it's really kind of a non-danceable. Beat. Oh yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's not something. It's not. It's not like would have been a lot lot more successful. You know, well, it was. I mean, hold your head. That was a pretty successful record. That yeah, was yeah, that but, like a worldwide number one. What yeah, working you? But it wasn't a dance record, as you say. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, I've seen people falling over trying to dance right, to it. Right. And I was in South Africa and saw the the band played "Smoke on the Water," and everybody got up to dance. Can you imagine dancing to "Smoke on the Water"? Right, right. Dance, right, right. Dance. What sort of dance do you do? Right. But to get back to Arjun again. So, in other words, that just kind of organically developed that drum beat. It wasn't like no, yeah. you brought the track. He brought the tracking because I would imagine Rod Arjun would be somebody who would have many time signature changes within a song. Yeah. given his kind of classical yeah. jazz background. Yeah. But it was more of a band feel of oh, yeah. playing it over and over again until you got it to what felt like was a comfort... I don't want to put well, words in your mouth, but... Yeah, yeah, well, well um, certainly that's what 9.45-minute spots for three weeks will do. Right, right. You know, and uh, 
and we loved it. I mean, a lot of bands did it and didn't love it, and so it was a complete waste. But most of the successful bands, you know, Deep Purple, all of those, well, they all did that. It's a ten thousand hour thing, yeah. you know, or, or and um, and we we enjoyed it, and 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 it worked for us. Right. And so that's where Hold Your Head Up. I I, I researched Hold Your Head Up, or, the, or at least I re- researched the rhythm. I always thought maybe it was a rumba, maybe it was a samba, maybe it was right. and it ain't. Right. It doesn't exist in you know nobody's a, nobody plays a dance thing like that. You yeah. know, it doesn't come from Brazil. It doesn't come from you know South America at all. Right, right, right. It comes from uh, ha- uh, Munich. Right. <laughs> But and so then did you go back to the Kinks after that, or how, what was the time sequence on this? Oh no, this was before. The, the, uh, Argent was uh, Argent was sixty-eight to seventy-five. Yeah, and then and remind me of the lineup. I forget who the lead singer was. So it's you and Russ. Yeah, Russell was singing lead. Oh, Russell. Oh yeah, yeah. and so was Rod, of course. Right, and uh, and so was Jim. I mean, it's very interesting that the the. Uh, the chemistry yeah. Now you mentioned who Jim is for our audience. Oh yeah, Jim, Jim Rockford is, uh, unfortunately, he's the late Jim Rockford. Yeah, right. Uh, is a bass player who I have played with for oh, at least 50 years, I think, 40 right, years, right, whatever right. it was. And he, he fell up the stairs and, and that yeah. was the end of it. Because he was in the latter day kinks Oh yeah, with he, his yeah, son. He, he wrote I, me, I mean, uh, zombies. He wrote, yeah, yeah, zombies. But he wrote me into the Kinks. Right. I wasn't in the Kinks. I was doing Don McLean. I was doing Ian Matthews. I was doing uh, anybody who wanted me, really. Right. And uh, but he, he, Jim, wrote me into the Kinks, and uh, and the rest is history. But yeah. I it's, it's we we were absolutely shocked that you know that he he was dead. Yeah. He was so much part of what we right. did. And guess who came along? Mickey Steed. <laughs> How long's Jim now? Eighteen months. Yeah, not not that long. I mean, we'd done we'd done Irish music, hadn't we? Oh, what you and me? Yeah, yeah. and Chip, of course. Yeah. And Chip so, what point did which, Chip what point? No, of the tremolos. Oh, that's that's when Bob and I first played together. I was doing the Chip Hawks gig, and Chip had two sons, has two sons, Chesney Hawks, and. Jody, who was his drummer, but mm. Jody would do other things, and the opportunity came up. Can you find us a drummer, Steedy? And I said, Well, I can think of, I can think of one for definite. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's uh, that was our first striking yeah. up together, wasn't it? Yeah, Germany and, with and, Chip, and it was fun. Yes, it was good. We went to the former East Germany. Right. Well, it wasn't the first place we went to, but it, and uh, I was I was stunned with the former East Germany. We were in a very posh bit, you know, where there had been. Uh, uh, no doubt the, the Nazis had been there for their holidays and, right. uh, and as soon as the war was over the Politburo went there for their holidays right. you know, and probably did exactly the same things the Nazis had done and we, we would be playing whatever we were asked to play mostly which you couldn't dance to or, they, or the Germans couldn't so that's where it all began and uh, well, very good. And there was the Don McLean thing going around America and going to Dewey, Oklahoma. Well, thank you much. And, and uh, remind the audience of Banging On, your fine book. Oh, yeah, the book. book's called Banging On. There's another one coming. I, I'm on my seventh book. How can this be? Wow. So, um, but the, the, I've, two of the books are travelogues. I've always been very interested in what was outside the windows of the, the tour bus. Right. And most people aren't. You know, most people are yeah. just asleep. Right. So I, I mean, going through Wyoming, for example, 
there's a, a horizon on the right-hand side, a horizon on the left-hand side, uh, a, a horizon in front of you, and a, and a horizon behind you. Wow. It's not, not easy to say that. So, um, you know there's nothing there, but it didn't stop me looking. You know, yeah. I wanted to see, you know, I yeah. expected, I expected a, a, an airplane to land on us, you know, like in North by Northwest, yeah, you know, right. that the road goes yes, over yeah, 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 right, right. And I actually used to go um, to the station in New York looking at that clock and you know where, yeah. where, where it all began yeah amazing strange really well thank you for our audience thanks you as well and we'll see you next time on the Malibu Music Room <laughs> Malibu Music Room is produced by John Zambetti directed and edited by Scott Monahan, recording engineer Michael Parnell the theme song is performed by the Malibus and written by John Zambetti. The Malibu Music Room is a production of the Peer Group Incorporated. Podcast, copyright 2020. All rights reserved.